Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 10th, 2009, and my guest is John Nye, professor of economics here at George Mason University and holder of the Frederick Bastiat Chair in Political Economy at the Mercatus Center. John, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. Good to be back. Our topic for today is the Great Depression and a provocative essay you've written on the subject, which we will link to. Let's start with talking about the different stylized versions of what actually happened, what caused it. Well, I think part of the interest for me in writing this essay was that I was asked to comment on the influence of the Depression on political economy in the Western world. And to be perfectly frank, I'm not a macroeconomic specialist, but it was an interesting challenge for me to look at the literature in light particularly of the received wisdom about the Great Depression. And if you like, one of the stylized stories is that you have this great crash in 19... Stock market crash, which leads to a huge banking panic as well as a macroeconomic crash. And one of the stylized facts we have is that, you know, Herbert Hoover did nothing, uh, and he was then replaced by Franklin Roosevelt in 1933, and Franklin Roosevelt then institutes a huge uh, policy of expansion of the state at regulatory sense, but in terms of spending, which then eventually by the time of World War One, uh, World War Two, sorry, yeah. um, solves or cures the United States or of the depression or gets rid of the depression. I don't quite know how you want to say it, and I always sort of knew that, that wasn't quite right, but I also knew that the Great Depression is quite controversial to this day. Nobody quite agrees on what the causes of it, for instance, are, etc. But the big surprise to me is when reviewing the economic history literature was both how strong the consensus is about many aspects about it, and when looking at historical literature, how different that consensus seems to be from what actually happened. In particular, the evidence is not strong that Hoover did nothing, that Hoover did try to increase spending on various margins, also engage in certain types of um, stimulative activities that presaged many of the things Roosevelt did. Over, he did things like try to talk up nominal wages and actually stop them from falling. And conversely, I was really shocked by the fact that there is a strong consensus in the literature that Roosevelt, in terms of fiscal policy, did which is what we remember, which is what we remember, did little or nothing to help the depression, and that the primary contribution of Roosevelt early on was his getting the U.S. off the gold standard. That is to say, it is his monetary policy actions that did the most to alleviate the problems of the Great Depression. In contrast, his fiscal policy is both controversial in terms of the positive aspects about it, but what's not controversial is it did very little to actually cure the U.S. of the Great Depression, which is a surprise to me, that even both, if you, if you like, um, uh, the mainstream economic historians pretty much agree that, uh, in the words of Christine, usual fiscal policy contributed little or nothing to the... And I probably alluded to this uh, in, in other conversations we've had on the topic. Uh, when I was younger, either in school or growing up, uh, going as an undergrad or graduate school in the, in the late 70s, 
I would say that the general perception among the average American, the average educated American in this in that time, in the 70s, when I started paying attention to this, was that the New Deal, quote, had ended the great. That was what got us right. out of the Depression. Somewhere along the line, uh, I noticed that that view no longer was commonly held, that that was now sort of uh, dismissed. Of, well, of course, you know, Roosevelt didn't end the Depression, uh, but he tried really hard, and he, he should get credit for that, and, and the war ended ended it. Uh, became the the new received wisdom, and I would say in, in, that is really the received wisdom. That that is the mainstream view today, uh, with with a few, of course, exceptions, which we've talked about on this program. Robert Higgs being the most uh, vocal and, and interesting one, I think. Uh, but the general view is that um, fiscal policy did get us out of the depression. It just it was the war's fiscal policy, not not Roosevelt's. That's right, and that's. That's something I don't really want to comment about directly because I'm not really uh, – I haven't uh, looked at that a bit. But it's, it's a fairly controversial issue, and I think there's something to be said for Higgs' point of view. But I think the mainstream consensus is that the, this leaving out the war, which is another b- big yeah. debate, that the single biggest thing that Roosevelt did was that in the very first year – of his presidency, he got the U.S. up the gold standard. Yeah. And, and, and sort of it seems to me that almost everybody agrees that that had a large effect in terms of spurring the early recovery. Because? Because in some sense, the claim um, of Friedman and Schwartz, uh, which is pretty much, I think, accepted. In some sense, one has to separate out the issues of what precipitated the crisis from what turned the crisis into a long-term macroeconomic depression. And I think regardless of what your views are about the crisis, about the causes of the crisis, there is a fairly strong consensus that neglect of monetary policy on the part of the Federal Reserve, that is allowing real interest rates to spike up, even though nominal interest rates may have been falling, that is allowing real interest rates to go up or not go further down during the early part of the Depression worsened the, the, the economy and not only made things worse, but actually prevented a, a proper recovery. In contrast, therefore, the standard argument is that getting the U.S. off the gold standard and devaluing the U.S. dollar was a kind of loose monetary policy that did what the Fed should do. Should have done. Should have done. But didn't. But did not. Now, there's an interesting debate so that there are people like Temin and Eichengreen who do not agree with Milton Friedman about the specific monetary causes about the Great Depression. I think these are sort of more technical matters I don't really want to get into. But they also agree that getting the U.S. off the gold standard was a good thing. But in their view, the Fed could not engage in more uh, accommodating monetary policy early on because of being bound by the gold standards. And so, but that's a separate issue I want to get into. But in some sense, whether you're a sort of a Friedman monetarist or whether you're sort of a Temin and Eichengreen believer in the, the fact it's the gold standard or the golden fetters that constrained uh, the, the governments, either both way, agree, either yeah. way, Getting it's off the, the money goals, supply. It's the money supply. Yeah. And so that uh, a historian, an economic historian of the period, Christina Romer, does in fact write, if you evaluate Roosevelt's policies in the 30s in the light of what he did, the consensus seems to be that what he did in terms of fiscal policy did little or nothing to help. What he did in terms of use of the gold standard did a lot. 
to help. Well, let's digress for a minute because I want to put this in context, a context that you mentioned briefly in the paper that I have uh, noticed getting some attention recently uh, elsewhere, which is the 1920 experience of the economy, which was a very precipitous drop. I didn't realize how large uh, a major recession, perhaps you could even call it a depression, but it was very short. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why was that? Des- describe that and uh, and talk about what happened. Well, I mean, what happened, the, the, the facts are that we, you had a severe depression in 1920, and industrial production fell by 25%. The Bureau of Labor's wholesale price index fell about 46% from 1921, from 1920 to 21. And if you look at unemployment, unemployment rose from a low of about half a million people, about 560,000 people in 1918, to a high of 5 million people. That is an order of magnitude increase by 1921. Nonetheless, this severe contraction was short-lived and recovery was swift. Um, It is said that the major reason for the recovery is that the Federal Reserve, having just begun in 1913, fueled the recovery with easy credit and the purchase of government securities. In addition, um, for whatever, President Harding uh, made promises to roll back taxes on the wealthy, and many of these promises were eventually enacted by the Coolidge administration. Moreover, the Coolidge administration generally didn't believe in sort of doing very much. Right. That's their, that is the reputation of – Calvin Coolidge's reputation is don't do very much and don't say very much. Now, of course, there's Great a de- combo. Right. <laughs> and there's a debate about whether this is the same kind of uh, crash that you had in 1929-1930. And like I sort of said, and this is a separate issue entirely. And uh, I don't really think uh, I'm fully qualified to assess – sort of the technical merits of it. My, my interest in it was looking from the outside. Why do we have such different impressions of these things? And why are our impressions of what the presidents have done? See, then something, take something, Franklin Roosevelt. Both the supporters and detractors of Roosevelt seem to be basing upon it upon a stylized fact, which doesn't seem to be tied to what, say, historians now talk about as, as having been relevant for the... For, for the uh, Recovery during the and, great, and that stylized fact would the way I would think of it is uh, deficit spending, correct? Right, exactly. A, a Keynesian, uh, a Keynesian story that we were all taught in the in intermediate macro uh, in the textbooks of the probably the sixties, seventies, and maybe even today. I'm sure it's still in there. The stimulative effect of deficit spending, and the great example of that is is the Great Depression. Uh, but as we mentioned earlier, uh, the, the defenders of that viewpoint have now conceded that, well, it, not in the 30s, in the 40s, when the war was at its peak, that's when we were doing real deficit spending because the magnitudes just aren't there. Exactly. And so, so in some sense, the debate now is over whether it would have worked had he done more in the 1930s versus those who sort of say it wouldn't have worked at all and what was done was actually negative. Now, there, there's a separate debate about the fact that his regulatory policy may have worsened things in the Great Depression, and there's some strong microevidence that that was the case. That is, in fact, things like the NIRA, the National, uh, the National um, Industrial, no, Industrial no. Recovery uh-huh. Act, which really authorized monopolies and cartels and a great deal of regulation of business was designed partially to move us away from an open competitive market and to actually limit competition for the purposes of raising prices. 
so that there was a recognition that you had to do something about deflation. But as of today, as today we would sort of say it's primarily a monetary issue. If, if your real concern is sort of aggregate deflation, then monetary policy should be a major force in terms of alleviating that. There, the concern was to sort of get prices up by any means necessary, which included monopoly, which was designed to keep prices and, 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 and wages high. Interestingly labor enough, that, car- labor cartels, labor cartels, bargaining. Bargaining, but, but also limiting entry in business, regulating business, etc., and encouraging and permitting monopoly. Now, it's interesting that today the consensus is this is pretty much a failure. Even during Roosevelt's time, an internal investigation, I mean an investigation, a public investigation, sorry, a better way to put it, a government investigation, I think as recently as 1935 or 1936, did suggest that the policy wasn't working very well and that the, one of the things they pointed to during Roosevelt's time was the tendency to encourage monopolies and cartels, which was um, not very efficient and didn't really help much in terms of well, improving, uh, sort of ending the Great Depression. Yeah, two thoughts on that. One, of course, is that economists, macroeconomists like uh, aggregate data on spending and, and, and taxes because it, you can put it in a regression analysis. It's a lot harder to put the NERA in a, the NIRA in a, in a regression analysis. So it's part of the problem is that uh, we can't measure those magnitudes very well uh, the way we try at least to measure the magnitudes of the impact of other other kinds of policies. Although there's some macroeconomists, I think Cole and O'Hanion yeah, have, have done work in which they've tried to factor in some of these other things and claim that it's negative. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, for, for me, the really interesting bottom line is that um, from a macro perspective, which is a lot of what the debate is about the Great Depression, at least in the short run, it really didn't help very much. So in other words, the best you can sort of say, so if you like the best Keynesian case that you can say is that Keynesian economics wasn't tried during the 30s and it didn't do much good. And the worst you can sort of say is the things that were tried did bad things. Well, let me, let me uh, challenge that. I think the defenders of Roosevelt or Keynes would point out that uh, they did work. And in fact, I think part of the reason that the fiscal policy story took hold, some of it, of course, was propaganda, which we'll get to, and in the role of Keynesians, Keynes's uh, general theory helped create that propaganda and a, a myth and aura around it. But couldn't you argue that GDP rose very steadily from its low in 1933? So actually, that's why people thought the New Deal worked. Yes, in 1938, there was another uh, uh, crisis, another spike upward in unemployment, but there was steady recovery from 33 to 38. So why is it that people in 35, say, or 36 were skeptical about these monopoly cartel actions? Why were people uh, in, in the late 30s so negative about the fiscal and whole umbrella of the New Deal policies, given how much improvement there had been. Why wasn't Roosevelt able to capture that at the time? And my impression is he was not. He was under a great deal of attack on the economy in 38. He wasn't as seen as a savior in 19, by 1938. Well, I think, uh, you know, if I could back off for a second, I think you're mixing up two or three different things, which is the question. I sure hope so. Go ahead. <laughs> I, think, which is, I think you have to separate the question of whether or not one gives credit to the policy for the recovery. And I think from a macroeconomic perspective, it's quite clear both from the timing and the size of the changes that the big jump 
there's an initial jump right away, right after getting off the gold standard, and that a lot of the improvements can be traced to the loosening in monetary policy. There's a separate interesting political economy question, which is a subsidiary of the things I talk about in my paper, which is why does a particular president get a reputation for this or that? And in this case, your view is sort of like, well, why is the limited recovery that's taking place, the recovery that you're observing, not leading Roosevelt to get more credit for it. And that's an interesting story. And part of the reason for that is that, of course, there's a double dip. There's in 37, 38, there's, right. another, there's another crash. Moreover, um, unemployment never quite um, improves. improves. But improves. It's, not, it's not rosy. It's not rosy, exactly. Well, l- let's talk about that political economy because I think uh, it, it's a fascinating question. Uh, the, you know, the level of economic ignorance uh, is always high. But it was particularly high in the 1930s. There were, I'm sure, both uh, non-economists and economists advocating some very uh, foolish policies that no one knew better to, to, to fight against uh, at all kinds of levels, both monetary, fiscal, and regulatory. So it, it's an interesting thing. The monopoly cartel idea uh, must have had some appeal to both the experts and the people as a, as a, as a plus – it's a little bit strange, right? It's hard to understand why that had because, you know, as you point out, there's this huge re- set of regulatory actions, many of which were window dressing, many of which never got off the ground, but some of them were quite important. And this, I think, is the most important one: the interventions in, against competition. Who thought that was a good idea, and why? Why did it did it sell politically, or was it was it pushed forward against the average person's uh, viewpoint? Well, I think there, there's, there, there's, there's uh, the big question, which I'll get to in my paper, and there's the smaller question of the United States. I think what's very interesting is that there was a growing consensus among a subset of the economics profession in the United States that the notion of competition, in the sense of market competition or the Adam Smith notion of competition, was passé. Yeah. And that the world was moving to a world in which corporatism and planning where top-down was was a very good thing to do. That was very modern. In fact, part of my interest in this was the interest in the way in which um, world policies changed. And it is quite important to note that Roosevelt, part of the impression of Roosevelt's change, had to do with the rhetoric in terms of assembling a brain trust. That is, a number of advisors, in particular Rexford Tugwell, the professor from Columbia University, who was one of the most vocal proponents of the idea that unfettered competition was bad, and that, in fact, small competition was bad. He was not only in favor of regulating the market, he was actually in favor of big business. This is the irony, right? So this is, people want to think about the rise of the state as sort of constraining capitalism. Right. And today when people talk about that, they often talk about restraining big business. But Rexford Tugwell not only believed the market was outmoded, but that the market should be superseded by large corporations wielding right. monopoly power, but heavily regulated by the United States Government. So in some sense, he was an advocate of a corporatist view yeah. of, of the economy, which is sort of like, if you can think about it as a, a U.S. analog, which is not at all the same, I, I want to describe it, but an analog to movements towards both socialism and fascism in, yeah. in, 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 in other parts in, in Europe. Well, Nazi Germany exactly. is, is a, you know, they were called the National, National Socialist Party. Uh, they were about, among other things, they were about big business being highly fettered by the state as a way to advance this, the, the economy. And one of the things that interested me is this, the, the bigger question is how does one think about the whole change? If one thinks about all the policies 
in the Western world, in the period from about the 1920s to World War II, which include not only the specific response to the Depression, but socialism, fascism, Nazism, sort of the rise of sort of this sort of big business, top-down corporatist mentality. But in addition, the rise of protection, the rise of sort of anti-foreigner sentiment, the restrictions on trade, these things cannot be seen as merely naive responses to the Depression. It's not a simply a technical question of responding. This is not just a question of there's a particular monetary crisis, people don't know quite the what's going on. The engine's not working. The engine's not working and people are going to change it. Yeah. One of the things I argue in my, in my paper is that when this can be seen as a worldwide reaction to the general rise of what I think of as the first true globalization of the 19th century. That it's in some sense a backlash against 19th century globalization. So let's put that in perspective. Uh, and and, and I wanna, what I want to get to is, from that perspective is this, this insight of yours that it was a, really a shattering of faith uh, that the, the depression caused and, and the events. And it was worldwide, as you point out. It wasn't just the United States. So let's go back and let's talk about what faith got put in place and what kind of uh, views people had, both elites and and, and average folk, what views people had of of the, of the system that they were they were part of, and how far back do you want to go in that story? How far well, back I think do you another think? way to think about it is th- this: very often people talk about, say, Americans say having faith in the market, or Americans yeah. having uh, belief, belief in, in true enterprise, yeah. and things of that sort. Yeah. And in my view, that's never been quite true. No. I think it's, <laughs> it's in, in, in fact, I would I would put it another way: human beings have never fully trusted markets. Part of the reason for that is that widespread markets basically didn't exist or existed in a very regulated interventionist form for most of human history. That is, for most of human history, and this is a point stressed by uh, my colleagues, um, my fellow economic historians like Doug North and political scientists like Barry Weingast and, John, and historians like John Wallace, who emphasize that what they call the limited um, access order, that is the order in which you have a set, small set of elites regulating or in some sense controlling the exploiting, economy, exploiting, exploiting the, yeah. the economy for their benefit while limiting access to ins- formal and well-functioning markets for the mass of the whole is typical of the world's history. That and is just... That what is unprecedented is what occurred in the late 18th and 19th century, and primarily the 19th century, actually. That is the, the, the period of probably the last half of the 19th century through World War I is, I think, unprecedented, was unprecedented in human history in not only producing industrialization, but producing a world of a lot closer to genuine large-scale anonymous exchange. This world in which you have large-scale anonymous exchange, in which trade is taking place, even though governments are trying to interfere or regulate in various forms, for the most part, it is relatively, again, it is again relative, relative to historical times, relatively unmediated by the state. And that that produced benefits, which were again unprecedented, that at no point in human history had the lower classes seen their incomes rise to the extent that they did from about 1850 to 1914. This without the welfare state, this without massive government intervention. That you had a huge, huge rise in prosperity. Sort of a multi, many times, doubling, tripling, quadrupling, quintupling, depending upon where you're looking at in the world, of their incomes. 
and their purchasing power. And Your health as a result. And health, et cetera, exactly. When you, look at, when you look at, when you throw in all the assets of human welfare, not simply about sort of the yeah. raw numbers on income, there's a huge increase in human welfare. At the same time, there's a sense people are getting that no one's in charge. <laughs> And I think this disturbs people. I think one fragility, of the, the implied fragility. That's right. I think, let me put it this way. At the end of the day, I think Vernon Smith has made this point. Human beings are not, for evolutionary and biological reasons, not set up to appreciate large-scale cooperative exchange. That is, we're used to thinking in terms of collectivities, and we deal in terms of networks of responsibility and trust that are limited to that most communities of 100 people. Well, you know, I think I'm sure Vernon said that, and I think he got it from Hayek, right? The, in the Fatal Conceit, a quote we've mentioned a few times in here, uh, I think it's page 18 for those of you paying attention at home. Um, he talks about the human impulse to take the microcosm, the family, which we're very comfortable with, which is how we were, uh, was where we come from, and expand it to the macrocosm, which is the society at large. And he says uh, that's very dangerous. And, and not a good idea, but we're not comfortable Correct. with the macrocosm of anonymous exchange. We want to make it more like the family. We want to have it be more um, – we want the trust that's implicit in the market to be more like the trust that's implicit in how we relate to our to our, our, our brother or our parents or our kids. And I think um, Hayek's point is that that's very – it requires a certain schizophrenia that we're not really equipped neurologically to, to deal with. And I also think that one of the things that, that that means is that the economy, even when it's supported, quote, unquote, the market economy, is supported grudgingly. It's kind of like, okay, I believe in the market economy so long as everything's good. But then it becomes almost as if you're personalizing it. Well, I'll accept the market economy, but you've got to keep delivering. And the minute you stop delivering, see, I don't trust you, it's gone. Because you're natural. You know, it's kind of interesting. We, one of the... I just taught my first lecture uh, uh, in micro last week, and I talked about how, as economists, we always we always uh, anthropomorphize the economy, which I think is inevitable because we don't have the language, for, as Hayek pointed out, for, for doing otherwise. But it leads to a – it's a little bit dangerous. It's a shorthand that actually leads to a misunderstanding. We often say, well, the market decided. The market wanted to. The market then had to intervene and reverse that. And that's a shorthand for saying these anonymous forces that are emergent uh, did something uh, in response to some change. But that implies a consciousness that's not there. And then, as you point out, which I really find interesting, this idea that, yeah, well, then there's somebody to blame. It's the market, as if, you know, as if it was conscious and intended a, a mistake or a bad outcome. And one of the things I think that happens is that in a crisis, particularly a very bad crisis, there's a huge pullback. And one of the things I wanted to say in my article is that pullback had begun before the Great Depression even. That is, if you think of the period, you can think about the entire period from World War I to World War II as a global pullback against the global anonymous market. Indeed, part of the reason for that was almost a naivety about the way politics interacts with economics. As we know, there are people who made the claim, who made the, the sort of claim, oh, the economies of the Western world are so integrated now that they can't go to war with each other, right? And then... This is in, the, twi- this is in the 20s. Well, or are you talking people about before? Make the, I don't know. People were making this argument in the late 19th century. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Before World War II, people make this argument in the late 19th century, in the early 1900s. And then the fact that World War I is a shattering experience. Yeah, that was a big demoralizer to world. That's correct. Yeah. And in some ways, it seems odd to me that that should lead to a kind of pullback with respect to the economy. But I think that the seeds of doubt about the economy and the desire for a kind of tribal responsibility for the economy starts to grow. Well, let me give you a version of that and uh, get your reaction. And, and I also want to challenge that uh, on the facts for a minute. Uh, I think part of it is our distrust, is, as we've really been saying here, about emergent order because no one's in charge of it. So there's a natural distrust, whether it's neurological, biological, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's an une- whether it could just be ignorance, a lack of understanding of how it works. But there's a natural distrust. And there's maybe in the back of people's minds this idea that somebody really is in charge. You know, there is a man by, I like the Wizard of Oz uh, metaphor. There is a man behind the curtain who, who's really taking care of Oz, who's really, you know, keeping things under control. And they, those people in charge, they won't let us go into war because it would be a mistake. It's horrible. People are going to die to no avail. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, when that war came in 1914, it was um, gussied up as a war about, to, to achieve great things. So there were two sort of shatterings. One was the idea that we'd never do something stupid like have kill millions of people. For, but to kill millions of people for nothing was very depressing, very unnerving. Uh, I think that was the biggest shattering. There had been lots of wars before, but, but that nothing had been achieved. And, of course, that put pressure, I think, the post-war settlement of Versailles to become uh, – to do something glorious. And that was Wilson's hubris with um, – trying to integrate his hubris with the desires for revenge on the part of the French. And the, it just was really an incredible recipe for disaster. But I think the same thing goes on with the, with the macro, with the economy, not just foreign policy. So if, to step into the current crisis for a minute of 2008 and nine, you know, they are in charge of the financial system. Who's they? Well, you know, the secretary of the treasury, the, the, the head of the Fed, uh, the president, uh, the, the, chief, the CEOs, you know, they're not going to let the whole thing kind of collapse. And when it does collapse, it does create a, a loss of faith. It was a faith that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Uh, I think it was, a, you know, it was a fundamental misreading of what was actually going on. But I think people do have in the back of their mind, you know, we'll never have a, a, a real uh, uh, flu epidemic like, like 1918 because well, – they wouldn't let it happen. Who are they? Oh, you know, the, 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 the big shots, the people in charge. But, of course, in many areas, no one is in charge, and often their big shottery is what causes the system to go, to go badly. Uh, but so back to 1920. Uh, Can I stop you yeah. there for a second? Yeah. I think but there's, there's one other point I want to make, which is to sort of say what's unusual is that it is not unnatural to want to blame someone when bad things happen. Correct. But what I wanted, the point I wanted to make, when bad things happen in the market economy, the support is much more fragile than in an economy which is often grounded in nationalistic or tribal or religious or ethnic instincts. Ironically. If, you're right. So yeah. if, you, if you look at it, I mean, one of the things I, w- I was thinking about a lot, think about the fact that, say, in the 1960s and 70s, when Mao and the communists and the Cultural Revolution were trashing China, the number of Western defenders who are still willing to come out and sort of say, well, look, it's not as bad as people say, or this is being done in the service of a new man. No, no Steel one, foundries in people's backyards. That's right. Yeah. No one, I mean, if, you know, to, to understand how bad this was, I mean, if, if, we imagine, if we imagine something 
three times as bad as the Great Depression, with far more cruelty, that would not even come close to the kinds of things that happened to China in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And yet, for fairly modest bumps, capitalism is condemned for being extraordinarily cruel or extraordinarily deficient. Whereas systems that were genuinely cruel and deficient and inefficient, that is to say, from no perspective, from the standpoint of both human rights and social justice, as well as from the perspective of economic productivity, it was a massive failure. Yet the willingness of people to cut it some slack, or at least some subset, is, is quite different. I do think it's quite, quite different. It's a great observation. The problem with it is for me is that, is that for the people on the ground mm-hmm. – uh, in those systems, uh, and I'm also thinking about the Soviet Union, which, of course, also had massive uh, cruelty, death, and and failure and dysfunction uh, that was extolled by the by the intellectuals in the West, as the Chinese experience was as well. I don't think very many people within the system were deluded by it. I'm not sure what you mean by that. I, I just I, this is really it takes us too far to feel. I'm just not sure. I think many people perceived things that were that were bad and good, but I think. Um, in worlds in which people are very poor, there is a sense in which some people come to have faith in something like that. I mean, there were people who believed, believed it. During the Spanish Civil War, people died with the name of Stalin on their lips. Yeah. And, and, you know, when, when great dictators die, a lot of people, I think, genuinely feel sorrow or fear or puzzlement. If you read, if you read the writings of people who say who lived in the Soviet Union, who hated the Soviet system, many were still nonetheless extremely moved and moved yeah, to I tears just, when Stalin died. I some just, of it was just out of fear, the yeah. fear that what will happen. But some of it was also a sense of sort of being lost. I yeah, I just, no, I just wonder about the, uh, how much faith they had in the economic system. Oh, no, no, but I, don't think, I think people don't have faith in the economic system. They don't think about it. They have faith in individuals. They have faith in parties. They have faith in in ideologies in, in much the same way. And I think this is the part that economics doesn't understand very well. It's one of the things, you know, it's one of the things I try to struggle with in that you can take the hard line that collective ideologies or the people's romances, you know, our colleague Dan Klein talks about it, is bad or undesirable. But the fact of the matter is people want to have some There's kind of, com- of communal yeah. identity. And yeah. some of that is rooted in evolutionary and other reasons, and some of it has to do with, I think, Hobbesian reasons. That is, just, I think, one of the things I point out in my paper, one of the big challenges for political economy is, is the twin, are the twin peaks of Hobbes and Smith. Smith, in some sense, gets us to think about the fact that specialization and free exchange are mutually beneficial. And if you think about the Ricardian corollary of that, that means comparative advantage stems from the fact that the more different you are from your trading partner, the potential, the greater the potential gains from trade. But against that, you have Hobbes, who sort of says man's natural, in some sense, default is conflict. And in order, and therefore, the primary function of a state is the maintenance of order. But maintenance of order is more difficult the more different people are, and conflict is potentially greater the more different people are. And so I think one of the great, great problems for political economy is this tension between maintaining order, which is easier, the more homogeneous, the more controlled, the more regulated the society is, the more outsiders are kept out, the more suspicion of outsiders is increased, the more tribal views are encouraged, against the Smithian notion that the more open you are to others, the more willingness you are to trust, the the more you have impersonal exchange, the more potential there is for growth and development and, and, and prosperity. And I think balancing those two things is in some sense the big 
research agenda of some of my colleagues and of myself in terms of and, thinking about the role of political economy. I mean, it just makes me think of this tension within the United States. We have this um, relatively large suspicion of immigration these days. I say relatively. It's still we're still a pretty open economy, open society, but but there there are loud voices, and, and sometimes I'm worried they're increasingly loud uh, that are that are tribal. Uh, and yet we're a nation of immigrants. It's extraordinary how uh, much we've embraced openness and the Smithian world to to a large extent. Obviously, many places left to to, to get done, but it, there is that that tension uh, even in a relatively open society over that. Let's go back to the 1920 oh, story, I, though, because I, I, you're I, I like this idea that. That you can view the the post World War One era as a withdrawal. That the, that the Great Depression really is just sort of the the spark or the or the most dramatic example. But how do you explain the 1920s? The 1920s are a relatively open time with lots of globalization, lots of trade, anonymous exchange, and lots of prosperity. So it seems that there was not a complete carryover from at least in the United States between the dis- disillusionment of, of World War One. And uh, disillusionment about the economic system. You yourself said, it, at least in the United States, I think there was already a big pullback in Europe, and Europe is the one that had suffered greatly from World War One. Yeah, America didn't. In, in fact, in contrast, America did not suffer directly from World War One, and economically, arguably, benefited from that. So yeah. they're becoming, you know, a but, net creditor nation in some it, sense, be- benefiting from. Yeah, from it's, this. it's worse than that. We stood on the sidelines, and thought that we were picking up the pieces in the post-war era Correct. By, by, and reassembling them in a more effective way. As a, exactly. Yeah. And so the fact that the U.S. benefited from, the, from that made it much easier, I think, to support notions of supporting the economy. And yet even then, um, the U.S. had many leading thinkers, as did in Europe, beginning who had took advantage of any crisis to push a line going back to the end of the 19th century, which sort of says it's about time to worry about reigning in the economy or at least controlling it for the benefit of, 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 of the state. Moreover, I think that one cannot... Oh, let me put it another way. This, you may or may not agree with this, but one of the things I've often talked about in my research is that I don't think there's any way to see the expansion of the state between, say, 1820 and 1950 as being driven primarily by ideas or ideology. Any macro phenomenon that makes, let me put it this way, as I point out, at the end of the Napoleonic War in 1815, no state is spending above 10 or 15% of GNP, more or less. By 1950, every state is consuming at least directly or a third of GNP, often over 50%. That tells me that if you were a Martian and you didn't know anything about <laughs> socialism, capitalism, democracy, communism, Nazism, fascism, you would just sort of say everybody woke up one day and decided they want a bigger state. Yeah. When something is that universal, I say you can't point to any one thinker or any one president or any one dictator as responsible for it. Something is changing about the relative ability of the state to encroach on the formal economy and the relative, in some sense, willingness. I don't want to use this in a conscious sense, but willingness in a social sense to permit that. That is universal. And part of that story is, I think, 
the pullback of the period from World War I to World War II, between World War I and World War II, and part of that may be technological changes sure. that, that make big states feasible, yeah. not only feasible, Taxation. but in some sense relatively more likely to emerge in equilibrium and make it harder for small states to survive. And think about it another way. Um, in one form or another, all small states survived after World War II only by tolerance of the great powers. By small, you don't mean physically small. You mean small, small government, smaller small government. government. No, smaller government and literally smaller states. Uh-huh, physically. Uh, physically. I uh-huh. think, I think just, just imagine another way. If, imagine if Germany had had the wealth of the United States and had won World War II. If, 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 if Japan had started the greater Japanese empire. How willing would they to have had small offshoots? I mean, I think they would have wanted more colonies. I mean, it's interesting that the United States, under the Pax Americana, was not willing to use its power to have official imperialism. Right, to have real colonies. To have real colonies. And uh, I think, certainly if the U.S. had not been willing to back that point of view, or the great powers, it's not clear to me how much people, you know, you don't have to be a very strong believer in determinism to realize that if the U.S. wasn't, willing to participate in the Cold War, that there would have been a greater encroachment by the, by, by the, by the communist powers in terms of some of the lesser yeah, powers. Yeah. Now, of course, they too, as they founded Afghanistan and others, would have found limits to their expansion of their power. But the fact that, you know, Central Europe went communist is not, is not trivial. Well, let's go back to that growth of the state in 1820 to, to 1950. The thing that came to my mind is this Again, inside of Hayek, I always find fascinating when confronted with the fact that most intellectuals are interventionist and statist. Uh, I think some people say, well, if the smart people think that statism is an intervention and a larger state is good, that, that's an argument for it. But, of course, Hayek pointed out that, that intellectuals and the elites have a vested interest in the power of the state because they will steer it. So we're talking about this distinction between top-down and, and uh, emergent or versus emergent order, the, top, the growth of top-down uh, control, at least since 1914 and maybe going back a lot longer, say, to 1820, some of that has to do with the rise of, uh, of intellectual – you said it wasn't an idea, a set of ideas or ideology, but some of it presumably is the opportunity for – uh, the so-called engineers of the state to profit from it. I think that's partially true, but I think if if you take my point of view, it's the other way around. It's it's the rise of intellectuals or anyone interested in promoting a non-intervention state is the true is the true anomaly. Precisely yeah, right. because the the non-interventionist or the relatively non-interventionist. A state which believes in an anonymous exchange is so rare itself. So the real issue is why we have Smith having any influence whatsoever. As you know from our last talk, one of the claims I made is that despite so-called the so-called transformation of Britain in, to liberal Britain, from sort of mercantilist England to liberal Britain in the 18th century, England was far less liberal than its propagandists made it out to be. So I don't think it's at all anomalous that intellectuals are in favor or against uh, a liberal state, because I think most people are against a liberal state. And liberal uh, meaning free and open. Free, free less, and open. Less, and, uh, more tolerant of, of markets. Of, of, of markets and anonymous exchange. 
and, and so that I think one of the th- one of the themes of my current research is the sometimes inadvertent spread of anonymous exchange in the presence of elites who have a vested interest in controlling and restricting that exchange. At the same time, part of, I think, the rise of the liberal world is also figuring out which sets of policy interventions creating the right set of public goods support that exchange and are genuinely necessary, genuinely involve a certain type of minimal intervention to provide the right kind of order. And I think that's a deeper and more serious kind of issue that is not reducible to simple uh, formulas about bigger or smaller states. I mean, let me put it this way. You often hear about a simplistic dichotomy of a bigger and smaller state, but of course, the Smithian notion was not about big and small states per se. The issue is the state should be big enough to do all the right things, quote-unquote, in terms of providing necessary public order and the necessary public goods of a state, whilst being small in terms of the things that interfere with the functioning of good anonymous exchange. But the puzzle, we, and par- or rather the paradox we have, is that any state strong enough to provide the first is strong enough to do bad things in the second. Yeah. And so there's always been a big debate as to how many bad things you're willing to tolerate in order to get more of the good things. Because as we will acknowledge, at least I believe, I'm not, I'm not a radical anarchist, I do not believe an orderly state will emerge without sort of a uh, state. And we can get in debates about that, but I just don't think... I don't think an orderly, well-functioning state will emerge. I, I, market. A market yeah. will emerge without uh, some kind of state. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think the... I know there are people, David Friedman comes to mind, who've, who've pushed alternatives, but I think I live in this uh, perhaps fantasy world that we could imagine a state that enforced the rule of law, enforced contracts, uh, provided courts, did some national defense, and that was all. And that is probably – what you're suggesting is that's unlikely to be a, a stable situation. There's not exactly. a lot of evidence that it, that it could exist. Exactly. But I, th- I think the right way I, I prefer to think about it is the following – I don't like spending my time thinking about normative ideal states. I like spending my time thinking about how real states have emerged Mm -hmm. and therefore asking ourselves, what can we do to nudge existing states and existing incentive structures to promote greater but stable anonymous exchange? And perhaps I am naive or insufficiently idealistic, but in my view, there has been too much effort spent on ideal states, whether on the left or the right, yeah, and correct. not enough spent time spent thinking about the way in which real existing states have emerged. So that, even, like I said, a lot of my own work has been looking at how markets have grown or been shackled or disappeared, and asking what actual transformations were responsible for the reforms that were actually sustained or that were reversed, versus, and as you'll very often find, there may have been an ideological thinker or a, a particular worldview that was an important component in sustaining that view, but it is rare that it happened without some underlying technological, administrative, or other kinds of political elements that complemented the shifts in ideology and worldviews. And that's the same thing I would say for the period between World War I and World War II. The fact that the U.S. became more regulatory and more interventionist 
in the 1930s is not merely an artifact of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The fact that there is a continuity between Hoover's behavior and Roosevelt's suggests to me that there were forces in the Western world pushing things. Now, it may well be with a different president, the U.S. would have been less regulatory than it emerged me. But I do not only think at the margin. only at the margin. Exactly. I mean, I think the right analogy to the current situation is – I mean, making the analogy to the current situation I think is very telling. You have George Bush who is on paper – and I emphasize on paper – through his rhetoric, is the right way to say it, a, a free marketer who practices in the spring of 2008, and he's a lame duck. He's got nothing. In theory, he's got nothing to lose. He should be at his most ideological. He practices instead, probably what will I think historically be seen as the largest intervention of the state, certainly in financial markets since the 30s, and perhaps greater than the 30s. Uh, a so he's a so-called free marketer, a so-called centrist, or perhaps certainly by his voting record, a left of center senator gets elected president, Barack Obama, who proceeds to follow the exact same strategy, regulatory strategy, uh, the propping up of institutions, the rewarding of – he took some political fire of you know, essentially enabling the, the continuing of large bonuses to, to Wall Street executives – that that the and he picks as his secretary of treasury that one of the architects of the bush policy i mean that's an unbelievable thing he wraps it in a different set of rhetoric of course but there's a tremendous amount of continuity there uh bush had his own stimulus plan back in the spring of was it 2008 i think it's hard to remember or was it yeah i think it was 2008 uh didn't work uh, we'll see what happens to the current one i we'll see how history judges it but but your point is that I think is, is correct, that that the incentives are very uh, per- pervasive and are pretty insensitive to the ideology or party of the of the head. The rhetoric's not, but the actions. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying, for instance, that Obama can't change things at the margin. That is to sort of say decisions that the Obama administration makes can affect the long-term trend in both regulation and the size of the state. At the same time, from an international perspective, again, one of the things I'm encouraged by is in this current downturn, one of the things a lot of people feared was that the resurgence in massive protectionism has not taken place. Yeah. And that is one of the most hopeful things, I think, yeah. of this current yeah. crisis. All right, that is interesting, although, you know, there's uh, – my, my worry is that if unemployment hits double digits and stays there for a while, we'll see a, a strong – uh, nativist sentiment there, and I'm very, very worried about that. But oh, I agree. But I think the bigger fear I have is, in fact, that a crisis unrelated even to this uh, recession will trigger other problems. So, for instance, if making sure. something up, if we had a flu epidemic, if H1N1 um, evolved and became a serious flu epidemic, you, then if the swine flu became really serious and devastating, um, even at the level that in the macroeconomy sense might not be very big, but it's enough to panic people. I would think that that would lead to a clampdown on international travel and trade, oh, yeah. which would be devastating at a time when the economy is quite vulnerable. Yeah, no, and true. then that would itself trigger a celebration. This is, I think, what often happens. You have a particular crisis, and then you have other things which may not be directly unanticipated, which are not necessarily directly tied to them, but which then trigger a set of events and responses which reinforce the bad views about these kinds of things. We've got about 10 minutes left. Let's talk about um, economic instruction and and how it relates to this conversation because I'm fascinated by by that. And I'm going to give you a stylized 
version of, of economics instruction and uh, and get your reaction. Uh, given your point about a lack of trust in anonymous exchange and, and globalization, you could view the teaching of economics as a this weird little cult where we tell people that actually you should trust in this anonymous. This is the Smithian story that, you know, uh, true people are self-interested or greedy in one version of it. True, uh, you don't know the person, people you trade with, but there are these things called market forces, repeated interactions, reputation, brand name, the profit motive writ large that actually protects people from uh, rapacious uh, firms. And so it's okay to let things go. Uh, against that viewpoint comes the occasional crisis, such as the Depression, or in this case, the current situation. But even within the cult, and this is the part I want to focus on it for close, even within the cult, we say, well, you know, there are some areas where where the invisible hand or these market forces don't work so well. Externalities, public goods. And what I've noticed as I've gotten older and as the profession has uh, – gotten older and as times have, time has passed, that window, there are two strange things about it. One, it gets larger. What's called a public good, what justifies government intervention uh, and externality seems, seems to grow. And at the same time, uh, there's an enormous disconnect between what government actually does and what our textbooks say are, is justified by government. So within our cult – of economists, we said, well, this this kind of intervention is good because, but there's not much of a relationship between the textbook and, say, farm price subsidies or the bailout of, of this group or other. The, the political forces are so large. Talk about the anthropology of that and, and what it might imply. Well, by asking me to talk about the anthropology, you're asking me to speculate in the area yeah. I don't know anything about. <laughs> but um, coming for a full circle. That's right. Um, <laughs> But I think one way you can think about it is, is, is the following, is that people have very different notions about what they would like. The among economic specialists who appreciate the value of the market, there are people who want a more interventionist and a more structured state, and there are people who want a less interventionist and less structured state. And I think part of the way in which these debates are disingenuous on both sides, actually, yeah, is that is that most people want to talk about these things and deny the, or rather, they want to not talk about the implications of their views, even though they lead to things that don't strictly follow from the theory, but they're congenial to them. So let me take something on both sides. If, for instance, you don't mind the state being a bit larger, then you push controls on externalities, even though you're well aware that if an imperfect control leads to all sorts of things that are not part of the theory, but expand the state in unfortunate phase, you find that as an acceptable or in some sense even a desirable outcome. Conversely, however, I find many of our colleagues here yeah. who are in favor of markets are often, yeah. are often very skeptical of traditional values and beliefs. And or Economic, social con- e- e- uh, you mean talking about externality, say? No, no, no. I'm talking about mean? social conventions. Okay. And so, so it is also true that sometimes, say, very open immigration without assimilation or very kinds of open moves towards expanding the economy will tend to break down certain types of social conventions. And they sort of say, well, 
we're not going to talk about it. We should talk about how it expands wealth. But they're not going to talk about the fact, well, there's a trade-off. If that wealth comes at, say, the cohesiveness of a particular kind of order or the ability of, say, certain types of religious groups to maintain its hold on the attitudes of society, well, they don't want to say publicly, well, it's good if that's these a, guys... That's a bonus. That's a that's bonus. That's a feature, not a bug. That's a bonus. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> For a bug. Some people, yeah. and, but if they said that openly, they'd be... Un- and I think yeah. it's... I think one has to be honest that this is part of the subtext, and this is what leads to a mistrust of experts on both sides. Yeah, correctly, actually, because you know, my view, my canonical example of this was a stimulus package. So when the stimulus package was put forward, uh, some people said it should be twice as big. It should be $2 trillion. Other people said it should be zero. That's awkward when you have great macroeconomists, people who are either have a Nobel Prize or could win one, disagreeing. It kind of makes you think maybe economics isn't much of a science. And my view was is that it's not much of a science in terms of predicting the impact of that. That's number one. But number two, what they were really arguing about is should we be more like France or less like France? There are a bunch of people out there, economists, who'd like to see us be a little more like France, and there's a bunch of us who'd actually go, like to go in the other direction. That's what an honest discussion would be, that discussion. Instead, it's – it's over the stimulus, and I would I would add perhaps as a way to sort of push us to you know as uh, uh, so a sort of a coda to all this. I do, as you know, a lot of work in France, <laughs> and the big debate in the last ten years in France has been should be more like the United States. <laughs> and in fact, the the election of Nicolas Sarkozy is partly about the view that Sarkozy is. After all, you you know what the nickname for Sarkozy was, right? Yeah. The American. Oh, really? Yeah. That, that's one of the nicknames for for Nicolas. Which Sarkozy. for some people was an insult, for others it was a selling point. I presume. Yeah. It has nothing to do, I think, with his specific policies, but it has to do with greater debates about the attitudes one one has to some of these things. My guest today has been John Nye of George Mason University. John, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.